following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Have you ever wondered when you were reading the Bible, reading the, the letters in the Bible, in the New Testament, what it would have been like to be in the assembly of believers on the first Sunday when that new letter from one of the apostles arrived? Have you ever thought about what that would be like? These letters are, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, and, and we think of them as kind of stale and have been here forever. But there was a Sunday in each one of these communities where for the first time a new letter from the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter arrived and it would have been read in its entirety in worship. Take the letter that we read last week and we read a little portion of it again this morning at at the call to worship. Imagine hearing, hearing these words for the first time. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We read this last week, and we're going to work with it again this morning because it speaks to our foundational value of community. And this is what we're doing right now. For a, for a couple months we've been doing it. We're going to do it till about Thanksgiving time, reaffirming the five foundational values that we believe God implanted in our hearts when we started Artisan Church over ten years ago. Awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice. Um, my friend Jason is here, one of the founding pastors of Artisan Church, and I, I actually, uh, it's been fun for me all through this series to revisit these, these values, which he and I wrote together uh, sitting around his dining room table at 3 Arlington Street. <laughs> um, and to, to, to see them with fresh eyes for me has been a lot of fun, and especially to revisit the scripture verses that we saw as giving support to these values has been really a wonderful experience. And uh, with Jason and his family here, it's, it's kind of reminded me of that history again. It's been, it's been so uh, poignant for me to go back through these things with all of you. Some of you are hearing about these values for the first time because you're very new to the artisan community, and that's, that's awesome too. But this particular uh, value, community, one of the scriptures that we have under there is the passage from First Peter that I just read to you. Can you imagine being part of a a first century church and having this letter from the Apostle Peter arrive and having the chance to hear those beautiful words for the first time? How inspiring that might have been. Unless you're cynical, kind of... Well, let's let's even not be quite so so disparaging. Unless you're maybe a, a, a preternaturally skeptical person... <laughs> like some of us are, unless you are inclined toward a little bit of questioning of authority, um, unless you struggle with, with doubt in your life, as many of us do. See, I have this picture of these churches reading these letters and hearing the words so joyously and receiving them with no questions asked. And having perfect faith in the risen Christ that never wavers at any time for any reason. Because, after all, they're from the first century and we're from the 21st century. But here's the reality. Most, if not all of the people in most of those communities had never met Jesus personally any more than you or I have. Had never seen his body 
post-resurrection or pre-resurrection any more than you and I have. And so I guarantee you that there are people, were people in those churches who have the same kind of questions about what they were hearing read that you might have about hearing those same texts read today. After all, I mean, they, they didn't have the internal combustion engine, um, and they didn't know about penicillin, but the idea of a, of a person being dead and then n- not being dead anymore, <laughs> uh, they had enough medical technology to, to know that that was unusual. <laughs> and absent that personal experience with, with meeting the risen Christ, they, they, they probably didn't have an easier time with faith than any of us do. And here's something that's really neat. Jesus himself seemed to anticipate that this would be the case for some people, maybe for all people. On a couple of different occasions, he, he gave his disciples a little bit of a, a heads up. Let's call it a heads up. It's not so harsh as to be a warning, but it's a, you might want to be aware of something kind of moment. One of our other passages that we use to support this foundational value of community comes from John 13. And uh, you can look at that in the Red Bibles if you'd like, uh, or or whatever Bible you brought with you. But I'm going to read it to you as well. If you just prefer to listen, that's entirely okay. Um, John 13, verses 33 through 35. Jesus says, Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now when he had said that to the the people he calls the Jews, this is kind of the word for like the Jewish authorities in the Gospel of John, uh, he had said it in in a, a fairly stern way. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And now he's saying, I'm really sorry, little children, those of you who do love and follow and trust me, I'm only here a little while longer, and the same thing applies to you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The heads up, the warning, the gentle, oh, you better be ready for this moment of saying, where I'm going, you, you cannot come, is immediately followed with this commandment to love one another. They're connected by their proximity. Loving one another, Jesus seems to be suggesting, is how we will be able to cope with the fact that he's not physically here with us. With the fact that we will look for him and he will seem not to be there. So there's some reassurance offered by Jesus himself for those who may doubt or who may wonder or who may question whether the whole thing is real at all. And it's not just a reassurance for those of us who are following him together. It's also the means by which, the method by which people outside the community will be able to identify us as his disciples. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. By what? By the fact that we perform lots of miracles? No? 
by the fact that uh, his followers inevitably seem to have perfect success in all their relationships and business endeavors? No. He doesn't say, by the fact that all your problems have melted away, they will know you're my disciples. He certainly doesn't say, uh, if you make sure that you enforce the laws of the temple and keep the right people in and the right people out, you will know that people will know that you're my disciples. No, that is not the way that people will know that we are his disciples. The way that we will know that we are his disciples is if we have love for one another. So you can see that Jesus intends for our community with each other to be winsome, which is a word that I really like. In other words, uh, our community is supposed to be attractive and appealing to those who observe our life together. It's uh, what I have titled this morning, a winsome oneness. Isn't that fun to say? Winsome oneness? You have to say it with a deep voice. It's a winsome oneness. You know, and as a matter of fact, the letter from St. Peter that I read a minute ago, that makes a similar point, right? Look back at that. What does it say? You are God's own people in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In order that. That's a phrase that we don't use much in, in our everyday parlance, do we? In order that. I'm giving you five dollars in order that you may procure for me a gallon of milk. All right, not say it. And verily I say unto you, return not to me with orange juice. <laughs> this, is not, this is not the pattern of speech that we would typically use. But in order that means what? Right? It means this is, the, this is the reason, right? The reason that we are God's own people is so that we have a basis from which we can proclaim his mighty acts. It's a winsome oneness. And this is what Jesus chooses to talk about when he gently warns his disciples that he's going to be leaving them soon. Where I'm going, you cannot come, but I give you a new commandment, love one another. You see these connections in two passages now, and I think that the whole story comes beautifully together in, in the last passage that I want to look at with you today. This is the the third one that I will have chosen from among those that we put under our foundational value of community is from John chapter 17. This is a few chapters later in the same book. And if you look at what happens in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, there's a four-chapter-long discourse that Jesus has. He's teaching, he's talking, he's interacting with people. It's all one piece. And then at the end of chapter 16, the discourse stops. And in chapter 17, Jesus does something truly remarkable. He turns to his disciples and he prays for them. It's a beautiful prayer that we should all read. Uh, And I'm going to pick it up in verse 20, which is maybe about two-thirds of the way through the prayer, uh, and just read a few verses of it. So uh, listen to what Jesus says when he prays for his disciples. I ask not only on behalf of these, meaning the ones who are there with him physically present, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given them, so that they may be one. 
as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become completely one. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. By the way, if you want scriptural support for why we talk about the Trinity when we speak of our value of community, this is part of it right here. The community that we see in the, in the coexistence of these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a model for us of how we ought to live our lives together. As I always say, that, is a, that would be a really great sermon someday. It's not the one I'm giving right now. But that's why we talk about the Trinity when we talk about community. It's a prayer for unity, for oneness, for community. (laughs) And it's interesting to me that Jesus fully intends for his ministry to extend beyond his physical presence on earth and beyond those who knew him personally at that time. And that it would ultimately become an encouragement and even, I would say, a persuasive argument for the faith for people who hear the way of Jesus preached. But there's a big if there. You can see with what Jesus says. People will be persuaded to follow Jesus by our community and its character if We perform lots of miracles and healings? No. If we demonstrate great success in our relationships and business endeavors? No. People will be persuaded to follow Jesus by the character of our community if people look in and see that all of our problems have melted away? No. Thank goodness, by the way, because if those were the criteria, we would be the worst example of ideal Christian community ever. But that's not at all what Christian communities, we're, we're, that's not the promise we're given in any sense. People will be persuaded by the character of our community if, if, if we are one. Because when we are one, the whole world will know that Jesus loves us and loves them too. That's what he says. So look at this beautiful cycle that can occur. If you imagine Jesus there with those, those few disciples who were there with him physically, God's love building a oneness among those people. And that oneness being winsome, drawing other people in to God's love, which broadens the oneness that's being experienced to include those new converts, which itself then draws even more people into God's love, and on and on and on. You've heard of a vicious cycle. This is what we call a virtuous cycle. I didn't make up that term. Don't groan at me. That's a thing. It's a real thing. (laughs) There's probably a Wikipedia article about it. And it's beautiful, but do you see how counterintuitive it actually is? That the oneness broadens the community? See, when human beings try to set up strong communities where you might see something that you would call oneness, we inevitably do that the opposite way, by shrinking the roster. Don't we? 
Oh, you don't look like us? Go over there. Oh, you like the football team that has a land-dwelling mammal on the side of the helmet instead of a sea-dwelling mammal on the side of the helmet? Get out of my sight. You think cats are better than dogs? You disgust me. You don't believe in double predestination or speaking in tongues or always voting for the Green Party because that's what Jesus would want or, or you baptize babies or, or you actually accept just war theory as legitimate or, or maybe the opposite of any of those things, then you're not one of us. By which I mean we are not actually one. When human beings try to set up their own oneness, the roster shrinks because the only way we know to achieve oneness is to enforce total uniformity in belief and in practice. But when our community is divinely initiated, when it's based on God's love, the opposite phenomenon occurs. The circle grows wider, not tighter. And so here's what I think we have to hone in on as we conclude today. We've seen that there is a beautiful and inspiring link between Christian oneness, what we call our foundational value of community, and the spreading of the gospel of Jesus. You might say, in churchy terms, that there's a connection between community and evangelism. And the temptation as is so often the case with things like this, will be to smile and nod and somehow expect that this beautiful, inspiring, spiritual reality will simply come to us in the midst of our bliss. That we can just sit back and enjoy the promise. That in fact, it's probably happening around us already. We would never measure anything like that, but I mean... Seems like it would happen. That's the temptation, to be passive and uh, assume that this wonderful thing will just come to pass because Jesus prayed for it. That it will happen absent any, uh, any initiative on our own part. And maybe there'll be a miracle. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that there would be. Let's assume that uh, a neutral response, which is to say a non-response, total inaction on our part, let's assume that that would result in people being one to the community of Christ because, because that's what would happen. Let's assume for a second that that would be the truth. We still have a problem because I think we don't stop to think about how we're actually working against the fulfillment of Jesus' wishes for our oneness. Because every time we act in a way that fractures relationship instead of repairing relationship, we're placing a drag, an anchor on the advancement of God's kingdom. And every time we see a person and think they don't belong with us, we're not only making our own circle smaller, but we're actually also doing violence to the whole church's ability to call people to faith in Jesus. Because who would want to be part of that? 
So I believe there are two types of confessions that we need to make, two repentances that we need to undertake as people of faith who want to be part of the answering of Jesus' prayer in our community. The first one is that we need to uh, look around the room, metaphorically speaking, because, you know, uh, you don't want to actually look at the person I'm going to ask you to think about right now. <clears throat> and because that person may not be here in the first place today, right? I, I sometimes joke we're an every other week crowd, right? Uh, but we really do miss you when you're not here. I know I'm, I'm literally preaching to the, <laughs> to the converted here, but... Um, um, We miss you when you're not here. Tell your friends that you miss them when they're not here. Another good sermon that I'm not giving right now. But but look around the room in in your mind's eye and consider the relationships that are fractured right now between you and some other person within our community. What are you doing right now to repair that rather than to make the the fissure bigger and wider? Did I use that word right? Fisher? F-I-S-S-U-R-E? Angela's not here. She's my go-to like science person. She'll either go... Or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what, are, what, what, what fracturing of relationship has happened between you and another person? And, and are you doing a single blessed thing about it? Or are you just letting it get worse? Because that's what it happens. It doesn't just stay the way it is. If there's a crack in something, you can fix it or it will, be get, it will get bigger. Right? So you need to confess, perhaps, that, that you are part of the problem. You are an impediment to true Christian oneness, which Jesus prays for us and calls us to. That's the first confession we might want to make. The second confession would be to uh, look beyond our walls, if you will, to coin a phrase, and think of who really in your heart, when it comes down to it, you don't want here. And don't tell me that there's nobody. Don't tell me that there's nobody. Because the second you consider yourself a wonderfully welcoming and accepting and progressive person, To everyone, uh, you make a second list of people who you don't want here because they are not progressive, welcoming people. (laughs) Huh? I think that's probably more likely to be the problem among the people of Artisan Church, but but maybe some of you also are, are not very welcoming people and there are groups of people who you would like not to be here for one reason or another. But none of us are off the hook, right? So I actually want to give you two minutes of silence to consider these two types of confessions. Are there personal relationships within our community that are fractured between you and another person that you need to do some work to repair? That's the first one. And as you think about people who are not here with us right now, who is it that you really don't want here really ever? Two minutes. Think about that and confess that. The problem with, with taking two minutes to, uh, to confess and to listen to what God might be wanting to speak to you is that sometimes he does. And you're like, oh no, I really do have to fix something now. 
Anybody else have that experience just this past few minutes? I did. I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to be preaching. <laughs> hmm. So confession is nice. Being made aware and accepting the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, is good. But the action of repentance is much more challenging. The, the, the decision to, to do something about it is a lot more difficult. But I do believe that this is what Jesus is calling us to in these remarks that he makes to his disciples in the prayer that he prays for them. And so I want also to call you to repent, to do something about what you just heard from God. Whether it's an interpersonal issue or a big kind of systemic issue. How, how are you being an impediment to true Christian oneness here at Artisan and what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. God, we do confess to you the ways that uh, we have failed to live up to the standard and uh, the ways that we have actually not only failed to live up to it but in some cases actively inhibited it. That standard that you set for for Christian oneness. We pray, Lord, now that you would give us the courage and the strength of character to ask for forgiveness of those who we've wronged. That you'd give us the, uh, the wisdom and humility to be willing to broaden our circle because it's your circle, not ours. Even allowing into our midst people who we'd rather weren't here. Let these moments of confession and conviction not stop here, but may they truly characterize our life together as Artisan Church in our next decade. We pray through Christ our Lord, who calls us to this difficult task. Amen. Well, I want to invite you now to receive the sacraments of Holy Communion, this wonderful, unifying meal that Jesus invites us all to knowing entirely that we are people who do not deserve it, extending his grace to us in total. All of us. And we practice what's called intinction here. You can tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in one of the cups. We have two stations at this table. Both stations have a cup of wine and a cup of juice. Please use the one that would be more appropriate for you and your family. If you are here with children, you can involve them in this moment too. If they're down there, please go collect them and you can have them take communion with you. If you prefer to take communion alone, you can do that. But uh, please do go get your kids right afterward. And uh, if you'd like to receive prayer, as I said earlier, you can receive that here uh, in these chairs under the cross with a member of our prayer team. And uh, however the Spirit may be speaking to you, let me encourage you and exhort you to respond to that voice, whatever it might be asking of you. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.